Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show I talk to stuntman turned director Sam Hargrave about Extraction 2 opening on Netflix or streaming on Netflix from next week. The Transformers are back in Rise of the Beasts. Chris Rosser reviews it and Chevalier when we look at the week's new releases. Plus... Classical music's greatest enthusiast, certainly in Ireland, conductor David Brophy chats to me about his favourite film. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're well and life is treating you well and you had a good week since last we spoke. I had a week of mixed fortunes. Let's put it like that, which is kind of a euphemistic way of saying, you know, it wasn't a great week. Or I found myself this week saying the phrase a lot to people, life's rich tapestry. I must have said it about seven times in different contexts, which is kind of a benign way of saying life can be crap at times. Uh, I, I like it as a phrase. I overused it this week, though, so I need to I need to tread carefully with that one. I did go out for couple of beers Thursday evening with a good friend of mine and uh, paid seven euro for a beer in a city centre location. Ouch. Now, this week in TV, I was re-watching something. Hi, my name's Mary Madison. I haven't been here for ages, but I need to re-register. Your last visit was September 2000. Yeah. That's a long time ago. I'm, uh... I'm very healthy. <laughs> oh, I need an updated ID and proof of address. I don't I don't have anything at the moment. Bank statements, home insurance. I'm, I'm not on any of the bills. So you don't pay bills? Oh, no, it's my parents' house. Wish my parents paid for me. It's not like that. Mobile bill? Oh, I don't have a mobile. How can you not have a mobile? Look, I just need a doctor to look at my head. Well, I just need a proof of residence. I live there. Yes, I know, with mummy and daddy who pay the bills, but I'm going to need a piece of paper that tells me that. OK, so what if I've been away for a long time? Where have you been? Somewhere. Where? Does it matter? Look, I have an infected cut on my head and I need to see a doctor. Go to A&E. No hospitals. I want to come here. Well, then you're going to have to start being a big grown-up girl that pays some bills now, aren't you? Next! Now, that is a clip from Back to Life, which began life on BBC about four years ago and has recently enough moved to Netflix. And a lot of people are talking about it. And I was watching it again this week in part for talking to Pat Kenny in their series Boxed, which I regularly tell you about because it's always on my mind, me and Pat Slot. But uh, I might have mentioned this show to you maybe three years ago if you're a long-time listener, and it is a great show. Daisy Haggard stars in it, and she co-wrote it, and she plays a, a youngish woman who's been in prison for 18 years, and she returns to her Kentish home with her parents, and she's committed a crime and gone to jail for a crime that's pretty severe, and the town don't want her back, yet it's kind of incongruous with who she is because she seems like a delightful person and she's optimistic about her future and she's trying to get back to life. People in her life are her parents, her best friend who was there on the night of the crime, her parole officer who is absolutely hilarious in it and just really talks about herself most of the time and 
other people she's trying to maybe get a job with and there's a possible love interest. And it is the perfect blend of sometimes tragedy and sometimes joy and utter hilarity. Daisy Haggard is wonderful in it and she brings a pathos and yet a hilarious sensibility to it when life is treating her badly and she keeps trying to get back on the horse. So if you haven't watched Back to Life, it's absolutely delightful and it subscribes to the Faulty Towers slash Ricky Gervais theory of TV perfectly in that every series should only be two, every TV show should only be two series long and each series should only contain six episodes. And this is exactly what Back to Life does. And it will in no way be coming back as far as I understand it. So it is a perfect 12 episodes of really funny, sweet, sincere, heartfelt comedy, which is now available on Netflix, both seasons of it, all 12 episodes of it. Let me know if you might have watched Back to Life or if you paid for an overpriced pint of beer or you experienced life's rich tapestry this week. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. We turn to the week's new cinema releases. Later, we are going to be talking about a biopic all about the composer Chevalier. More of that anon. The big new release of the week is Transformers Rise of the Beast. Rise of the Beasts. And Chris Wasser, arts journalist and film critic, has been busy spending his days in darkened rooms watching these movies and more. Chris, hello. How are you? I'm well, John, although that doesn't sound, that sounds a little sinister, spending my days in dark rooms, but yeah, hopefully I have some good reports for you. I meant it as time well spent, but anyway. <laughs> so listen, Transformer Rise of the Beast, my understanding is this is a kind of follow-on from Bumblebee, which was a pretty good Transformers movie that I remember my then eight-year-old enjoyed a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the best way to describe it. A pretty good Transformers movie, which they should have put on the poster because nobody after five pretty bad Transformers movies expected something like Bumblebee. Um, I quite enjoyed it. I found it quite charming. Uh, yeah. Lovely screenplay. Uh, lovely screenplay. Um, uh, lovely direction from Travis Nice, who had previously worked with, with like animation. Uh, stripped of all the bull you know, from the Michael Bay films, you know, yeah. there was no Crash Bang, a little bit of Crash Bang Wallet because, you know, it is a, tra- a Transformers movie, but it was less busier. It was very charming. It was essentially E.T. with a Transformer. That yeah, idea. I, I, I remember that at the time. Yeah. 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 That idea that, you know, what if, um, what if a teenager came across the car? You know, there's always that story, like a teenager comes across the car, it turns out to be a Transformer. But what if the Transformer was scared and vulnerable and far from home and they had to look after it? I thought it worked out very well. So going into this, we are told that it is, you know, Transformers Rise of the Beasts. It's a standalone sequel. In other words, you may have seen Bumblebee. Well, look, it exists in the same universe. We're just going a few years ahead, but we're still a few years behind the first Transformers movie. So you, it helps if you've seen other Transformers movies, but you can also come into this expecting a new story. Apparently, this is the start of a new trilogy. So in terms of where we are in time, it's the 90s. Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm with you so far. Now, we want to be careful that we don't get lost in the autoverse or no, whatever no. whatever it's called. So this is a kind of standalone sequel to Bumblebee. So what's happening in this one? I understand there is a villain who eats planets. So I'm a little worried at the outset. I mean, that's, that's a worrying start. I'll try and keep this as simple and as quick as possible. There is a villain who eats planets. We do witness this battle between 
furry transformers let's say you know there's a cheetah there's a gorilla there's a rhino in there and just you know very scary metallic transformers you know your basic kind of uh terracons and unicrons or whatever they're whatever they're called and you have this big robo god he wants to eat planets he wants to get his hands on something called a transwarp key it's basically a MacGuffin that will allow this you know evil robot to travel anywhere in space and time to gobble up as many planets as he wishes but you know the good transformers somehow find a way to to hide that key so most of our story then takes place in 1994 we start in new york we're following some new humans we've got uh anthony ramos's noah diaz he's your basic transformers good guy in other words you know he's having problems of his own with his family at home you know struggling to keep a roof over his head he has some military you know uh uh, uh expertise he used to be in the army that'll come in handy later on and like i said earlier it's always this thing where our protagonist stumbles upon a car that can drive itself and that turns out to be a transformer and this guy alongside a, a, a an academic named Alina Wallace portrayed by Demi, uh, Dominic Fishback these are two humans who just happen to be in the right place at the wrong time they end up in the middle of this you know transformers battle they're informed of all the stuff I just told you about that you know yeah. planet eating robots and they decide to team up with the transformers because for some reason the transformers allowed them to team up with them to help save the world that is the that is the simplest explanation okay. of a very convoluted plot yeah I- I'm, I'm sensing that. And tell me this, from even my, my days playing with Transformers, which was a long time ago, but is Optimus Prime in this? Yes, yeah. I mean, I don't okay. think... I, I, I He even managed to pop up at the start of Bumblebee. I don't think yeah. Yeah, they're allowed to have a Transformers <laughs> movie done without Optimus yeah. Prime. Yeah, oh, that's good to know. And Bumblebee's in it as well. Yeah, yeah. All, okay. of, all of the original gang are there. Okay, so, so far a bit odd, but I, I get what it's about. Does it deliver... No, I, I mean, I, near the beginning of this, if you remove the, uh, you know, the, the, the first 15 minutes where we're being told about this planet eating robot monster, all the stuff that is set up in New York, I was on board with it for a few minutes. I thought, excellent. You know, it's been, as I said, it's stripped of the madness. Michael Bay mm. the producer's chair. This time we've got Stephen Capel directing. He directed Creed 2, did a fabulous job with it. And I thought, we're, we're going to tell a very human, relatable story here. I'm on board with Anthony Ramos. He's a brilliant actor. I like Dominic Fishback. I thought she was great in Judas and the Black Messiah. And I liked their stories, you know, kind of just one trying to, you know, as I said, look out for his family. Another trying to, you know, uh, be appreciated as a as, a, as an archaeologist, but, you know, all of her boss is just not paying attention to her. There's some good human stories there. And even when they, they, they converge with the robots and, 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 and listen to this story about how the world is potentially ending, I thought, okay, keeping it small, keeping it small. And then the film decides to just ditch New York altogether, ditch all of the characterization, ditch all of the, you know, the good acting, the, you know, potentially promising story moves to Peru and then it's just an hour and 20 minutes of crash bang wallops smashy smash smash CG you know special effects that at times don't look finished superhero nonsense uh hip-hop music just thrown in there because all of a sudden the film remembers that you know the, the the 90s New York setting at the beginning it's all over the place Okay. Just to be clear about this, like for the uninitiated, in terms of the robots themselves, I know there's a voice cast, but are there any actors like in the robots or or are they all just CGI? Well, that's a funny way of putting it. You know, are there actors inside the robots? Because this is probably the first Transformers film where it does try to put, you know, the the human characters in a robot suit. I better not say any more because it might be a spoiler. But we do have some very famous faces and voices 
um, you know, lending their dulcet tones to the to, to the robots. We've got you know Oscar winners in there. We've got Michelle Yeoh essentially voicing a a Falcon Transformer. We have Peter Dinklage who is voicing mm. uh, the the one of the bad guys, Scourge. Uh, we have uh, a comedian, a very famous comedian in there, Pete Davidson. Uh, he yeah. lends his voice to uh, this sort of kind of uh, you know um, I, I don't want to say street savvy uh, Transformer, but that's the way Mirage seems to be in this thing. So some very big you know heavy hitters. Uh, in this thing I, I i just kept wondering why what what exactly attracted them to this because they're, they're they've nothing really to work with most of the time it's just we need to find the key to stop the universe from you know exploding or we need to stop the you know giant robot over there from 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 eating our planet or in the case of pete davidson at one stage he tells a human character that they've been inside of him which is a weird joke uh, <laughs> even even for a transformers film um so yeah so i didn't really get anything i don't think i don't think the film really benefits from having that cast from having okay. you know such a talented cast involved um yeah, it's just a shame to see a Transformers movie move so far away from what Travis Knight did on Bumblebee. As I said, that was quite charming, quite funny, uh, wonderful lead in Haley Steinfeld. Yeah. This seems to be it seems to be a case of we learned nothing from that last one. This one is just bigger. It's somehow stupider. You can feel Michael Bay's presence all over it. I don't know how much of a you know a role he plays in terms of his his, his producer credit here, mm. but you can feel him all over it, and that's not a good thing. Yeah. And so like this hour and 20 minute fight that just happens in Peru that, you know, gives you nothing. I also sense maybe it, it like it doesn't make a huge amount of sense or it's confusing about what the actual point of it is, where the like they lose you in terms of the purpose of it. Nearly. Oh, oh, they do. I mean, at one stage. So the humans being involved in this thing makes no sense whatsoever. You know, we have, mm. as I said, this ex-army lad, we have a, a, a an academic, but they have no experience you know, in that department of saving the world, basically, with robots. I don't know why they were there. And when they get to Peru, the humans are required to do things that the robots will be better off doing. So nothing anyone does makes sense. Nothing anyone says makes sense. Every now and then, the characters just come out with these, you know, it, it, it just... It, useless one-liners where you know in the middle of a fight sequence someone will just say brooklyn baby because you know they're reminding us that some of the characters are from brooklyn and i'm just thinking what are the what are, what's everyone saying to one another what's what's going on did did, did did you know did an editor run over this it just doesn't oh, make any sense and i think you you need and I'm, i know it sounds silly saying a transformer film doesn't make any sense but like what we were talking about with the bogeyman last week these films used to have some sort of internal logic of their own yeah. going on, and that's what made them barely tolerable. This one doesn't. It doesn't seem to know how to, you know, piece a story together. It doesn't seem to have any regard for us, you know, the audience, for 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 itself. Um, and it also, John, again, I don't want to give anything away, but it, it comes with potentially one of the stupidest endings to a film I've ever seen. I don't know really you know who this film is for. Certainly not you, and it doesn't sound like me either. Okay, we better put people out of their misery then. What are you going to say stars-wise for Transformers Rise of the Beasts? I think it's tiresome stuff. Such a shame. A waste of extraordinarily good talent as well. As you know, Michelle Yeoh, Anthony Ramos, what, why are they all involved? Uh, it's one star, John. I just I couldn't star. stand this thing. Well, God help us. Let's take a quick clip. <laughs> I haven't cooped up forever, dude. This is probably a lot for you, huh? Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought after the car chase we were boys. What are you? The name's Mirage. Come on. Give me a little, give me a little, give me a little, give me a little tap. Give me a little tap. There you go. Now we're friends. Oh, 
great. The gang's here. They're more like you? You brought a human here? I'm nobody. I ain't even seen nothing. I'm not even seeing anything right now. That was a clip of Transformers Rise of the Beast, which Chris Rosser gave a very poor one to. And it sounds like he might even be being generous. Now, something very different is Chevalier, a, a biopic about the famous composer. Chris, is this a straight ahead biopic? He, people might know he was the first kind of African-American or, or person of African heritage, I should say, who kind of became a serious composer, as we understand it. That may not have been the case, but that's how the world saw it. And to be honest, I didn't really know much about Joseph Ballone, Chevalier de St. George, uh, before I went into this. But yeah, he was the first composer of African heritage, you know, in 18th century Europe to be accepted into, you know, high society, to be accepted into rooms where people of color generally weren't accepted. So there is an extraordinary story here. And it's, it's, it's sort of a shame then to find that the director, Stephen Williams, kind of makes a bit of a mess of it. Um, the opening scene, though, I, I should say in the first five or ten minutes, I thought, this is this is going to be great. The opening scene, uh, uh, we see um, Mozart, basically, uh, portrayed, um, um, you know, in a cartoon manner almost by uh, by Joseph Prown. And he is performing this concert, introduces himself as Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And you have to excuse not just my accent there, but also the accents in this film. Um, but he is calling out for requests at this concert in Paris. And everyone's shouting up requests and then this one man in the back, you know, has has a different sort of request, and that is that he would like to perform with them, that he would like to, you know, um, he almost challenges Mozart to a violin duel. And that's what we have then. And it's brilliant. It's playful. Um, there's some kind of modern tunes in, 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 in their duel too. And it ends with Mozart essentially asking, who the F is this guy? And I was sitting there thinking, this is going to be great. This is going to be quite playful, quite subversive. It's going to have an awful lot of fun and be quite inventive with an historical story. Unfortunately, straight after the title reveal, it just forgets all of that playfulness. And it just becomes a very dry, um, very dreary uh, uh, telling of, as I said, an extraordinary story. We meet Joseph Boulogne. He is the illegitimate son of an African slave and a French plantation owner. And when he's a kid, his dad drops him off at a Parisian boarding school. And, you know, the principal has no time at first for, for, for this young, for this young boy because of the color of his skin. But as soon as he sees him fencing and as soon as he hears him on the violin, he thinks this is a gifted, uh, this is a gifted boy. And Marie Antoinette, who's portrayed by Lucy Boynton here, she thinks so too. And when he comes of age, he's knighted, which kind of, you know, gets him his place in high society at the time. And as an adult, you know, because of his, you know, skills, especially as a composer and a musician, he sets his sights on the Paris opera and he wants to become the first uh, person of color, uh, basically, to have an opera stage at Paris Opera. Unfortunately, there's a dangerous romance up ahead with a married singer. That's where Samara Weaving uh, and playing Marie Josephine comes in and that will essentially throw a spanner in the works. And does it do the beginning, middle and end of his life? Does it take it right up to his death? Um, no, it does not. No. Uh, so you could have a different film entirely. Uh, so we're kind of, we're not even there for the birth. We kind of get a little bit of a montage in terms of his, his, uh, his, his childhood and the time that he spends in the boarding school. Most of it takes place what I'm guessing is is maybe in his 20s, because doing a little bit of reading before and after this, mm-hmm. I realized that, you know, at a time when Joseph Boulogne wanted to stay something at Paris Opera, he was actually pushing 40. So this film does kind of play around with the facts. You know, most of what we're seeing is true, but there's a little bit of, you know, there are embellishments here and there. Um, 
I just think it's such a shame that most of the playfulness, as I said, happens in those first 10 minutes. Everything else is quite flat and quite uninspired um, and quite superficial at times. I mean, if you're looking for uh, a a sort of a a pantomime soap opera uh, reconstruction of, you know, revolution era Paris, like this is this. It's a very cozy depiction of what that time was like for everyone. I mean, there are, you know, there, there, there is an awful lot of anger there. You can, you know, there, it, it, it does, it doesn't shy away from showing you the, you know, the racism and the hatred mm. towards Joseph alone, but it's just a little bit too cozy at times. Um, so yeah, it's a fabulous story, very well performed by the female performers in this film. You've got Minnie Driver in there, Lucy Boynton, Samara Weaving is great. Calvin Harrison Jr., though, as Joseph Malone, good, but perhaps just restricted. Um, it just I, Maybe it was the direction, maybe it's the screenplay, but there was just this sense when you're watching him that we're not getting the best out of him, and I don't know why that is. So it could have been something great. It's something less than ordinary, unfortunately. Right, so fascinating source material, obviously, given his life, but just kind of drearily told in, in terms of that life, it seems. I think so, yeah. Um, and and it's just, you know, and, and it, there is scope to have some fun with this story. And, you know, every now and then we just get a glimpse of the kind of film it could have been, um, but it just never quite gets there. Okay, so what are you going to say, stars-wise, for Chevalier? Now, Chevalier is, is a part of his name because you refer to him as Joseph Cipollone. So was Chevalier a moniker or was it his middle name? Or yes, no, name or? Joseph Cipollone was, was his name. And then Chevalier, uh, I, think it's, I think it's essentially a knight. You know, that's oh, okay. uh, he became, you know, the oh, knight okay. of, of, of the St. George uh, when Mary Antoinette, or when Marie Antoinette came into it. So yeah, okay. a title, basically. Right, okay. And stars-wise then? I think we'll go with two and a half out of five. And it's, uh, you know, it seems maybe a little bit unfair and I really wanted to like this film. I yeah. just, I just kept thinking, be better, do better. And, and unfortunately it wasn't. Well, look, you did the best you can with us. That is two and a half for Chevalier, which is also on release from this Friday, which is the 9th of June. I've been talking to film critic and arts journalist, Chris Wasser. Chris, thanks a lot. Thanks, John. It's Chris Wasser there with the week's new releases. Up next, stuntman turned film director. Sam Hargrave. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now take a listen to this. Tyler, you were clinically dead nine months ago. But you survived. You fought your way back. You just have to find out why. Now, that was a clip from Extraction 2, which lands on Netflix next week, the 16th of June. Extraction 2 is obviously a sequel to the first movie, Extraction, which was a surprise hit back in 2020. It was a surprise hit in that it kind of got big in lockdown. And Chris Hemsworth plays this secret ops vigilante dude uh, called Tyler Rake. And he's a mercenary not a vigilante, a mercenary who sent on a mission to extract the son of India's biggest drug lord from captivity in Bangladesh. And it was kind of, I don't want to say an excuse, but it was a load of really cool stunts and fighting bad guys. It was a straight ahead, really pleasing action movie. Now, Extraction 2 sees Chris Hemsworth character Tyler re-emerge after being presumed dead nine months ago. And this time, he's assigned again by a black ops mercenary group to rescue a ruthless Georgian gangster's family from this prison. 
in, I think it's Romania or, or yeah, or Georgia. I'm not entirely sure. The location probably isn't that important. What is important is there is incredible action in this. I'm, I'm, you've used it already, but it is high octane, kind of relentless entertainment. There's a few quieter moments where we learn what might be driving Chris Hemsworth's character, but largely it's him doing jail breaks, going on, engaging baddies who are after him. And it's really well put together. And the reason why it's really well put together is because there is very little CGI in it. The action is all shot live and also choreographed and is real. And the reason why that is, is because it was overseen, directed by a guy called Sam Hargrave, who's a stuntman who'd previously been Chris Evans' Captain America double. And then became a stunt coordinator and has worked with the Russo brothers in lots of Marvel movies and all. But these extraction movies are him getting into directing. And in Extraction 2, the stunts are absolutely incredible. So Sam Hargrave started life as a stuntman, now a film director, really fascinating guy, who I had a chat with about Extraction 2. So there's, you know, a lot of myths about uh, screen or test screenings, you know, that they change the the end of uh, fatal attraction, all sorts of things that I'm never sure are true or, or folklore. But my understanding is, and you can verify this, that the original Extraction, which is a great movie, and this one is too, in terms of high-octane entertainment, our lead character was brown bread, as we say in this part of the world. But the test screening, they, they didn't want that, and they wanted him back. Is that true? That is true. Yep, we the original concept for the film, the original script and the original thing we shot was Tyler Rake didn't didn't make it. He he sacrificed himself, his, his redemption was complete and you know his story arc was wrapped up and he was brown bread. Hmm. And you know once we started testing it internally and Netflix kind of saw the potential and then we a few screenings where audiences were responding positively to this character that it was like, well, we you know we may have something here. We and so we went back and and among other little story points, we, we shot a, an ambiguous ending that would allow for, uh, you know, this character to live on if necessary, mm. depending on the response from audiences. And then once we saw how well received the film was, it was kind of a sure thing that a second one would be in the works. Okay. And these, these screenings, then these test screenings clearly have a value then, you know, despite what we might think. They definitely do because, you know, you're, you're making these movies for the audience. And so if you can screen it early and get feedback from them and, and change or change course or add things that it will make the movie better or people enjoy it more, then that's very valuable feedback for sure. Yeah. So Chris's character in this, we learn more about his background and what may be driving him in this one. Is there a bind as a director, you know, in terms of you want the, this kind of brilliant assassin to be almost like the nothing man that has no past and no future and he's just this killing machine, but yet you you stray into emotional territory. Do you have to weigh those up kind of? Definitely taken into consideration when you're you're trying to deal with a character like this who on the surface or, you know, in all the movie posters is holding a gun with a flaming <laughs> helicopter behind yeah. him and he's a yes. total badass. <laughs> but I think what if you stay too far away from any emotional vulnerability, you alienate yourselves from audiences. Mm. So I think I think what is, you know, making Tyler Rake a little more, um, I guess, relatable to audiences is that vulnerability that kind of chink in the armor so to speak like he's mm. not ju just a killing machine he has a you know he's made some mistakes in his past and he feels a lot of guilt for that and so a lot of what drives him is this pain from his past 
to kind of atone for his poor decisions. And I think a lot of us can identify with that. So I think we, we tried in this film, especially to deepen that emotional connection and explore more of the avenues of his past and his pain so that we could, you know, um, connect with him even more deeply on a human level. And I think mm. uh, audiences will respond to that. So much is, I suppose, made of you having been a stuntman and then a stunt coordinator, and now you're directing these movies. But like the stunts and the action in it is absolutely incredible. Is is this all real stunt action? Was there any CGI stuff used, or or my understanding is a huge amount of it is all trained stunt people working their asses off. Yes, we. Part of my kind of, um, I don't know, style, if you will, is to do as much practical action in camera as we can achieve safely. And we did that for this movie as well. I mean, we there's very little, I mean, all of the, I mean, there's a few little um, digital enhancements here and there or things where, you know, we're not crashing um, real helicopters necessarily because we, we love the pilots and they got to do more work for us. <laughs> or, you know, sometimes we're enhancing a thing or there's an enhancement in the background or we'll use CG to paint out a wire or something. But we, as much as possible, we, we because I think audiences know the difference. There's a feeling, mm. a sensibility yeah. when you see real people performing real action in camera. Mm. There's a there's just a sensibility that we as humans have that respond to that. And we go, Oh, that hurts. And it's a feeling is le you know, less than, you know, an observation and go, Oh, that's beautiful. Or oh, that's mm. cool. You could feel it deeply mm -hmm. somewhere in our, you know, our humanity. And I think that's um, for me, a very important part of the action that I do is because I want people to have a leave the experience, whether you're getting it from your couch or walking out of a theater or wherever is to have felt something. And I think doing practical stunts helps uh, helps that in the storytelling sense. Now, there are many sequences in this movie that are breathtaking. The one that I really liked, and again, I hope it's not any kind of spoiler. I don't think it is. But there's a scene that takes place near the start of the movie on a train. And there's helicopters flying on the train. And it's incredible. And it looks real. How long did that take? And was it nightmarish to pull it all together? You know, it, it's it it was it was a dreamlike uh, experience, but I think more of a positive one for okay. when it comes out the way that it did, which was mm. you know I think very successful in, in my mind as a filmmaker because what we set out to do we we did, but it took months of rehearsals and just that train sequence alone. We took the exterior stuff. We shot some of the interiors at a different time, but the exteriors of that train was seven days of shooting. And like four weeks straight of rehearsal with everybody wow. out there, all of the cast and crew out on location so that when we turned over, when we rolled cameras, everything was happening exactly how we planned because, you know, there were exact speeds that had to be met because, the, you know, to land a helicopter on the train had to happen in a in a certain space because yeah. it was power lines over here and trees over there. So to make it safe, it had to happen in this zone. So it was all very technical, all very well mapped out. And the cast and crew performed, you know, unbelievably well to pull this thing off. I gather you as a hands-on director and stunt coordinator, you, and it's clear looking at you here, but you stay in shape to the point that, now this may be apocryphal, but you know, you can never believe what you read, but that there's an alarm that goes off on your watch every 30 minutes to tell you to exercise. 
Yeah, that's say I mean, not every 30 minutes, because sometimes I got to do interviews with amazing people like yourself. But during if you need to stand up, it's fine, by the way. Okay, great. I'll drop down and give you 20. (laughs) For me, that that was a way to something I adopted back on the Avengers days when it was a lot about trying such busy days on set. By the end of the day, you're knackered because you've been 16 hours working. So like, how do I stay in shape? It was like, well, it's just every 30 minutes. Let's just stop what we're doing and, Mm. and exercise now not in the middle of a take, obviously, but, you know, within reason, it was a way for me to maintain that, that level of fitness. So physical movement and and physical fitness is very important to to me just personally, but also when I'm performing and, you know, following these insanely in shape actors like Chris Hemsworth, I don't want to be the one who taps out and says, guys, I need a break. We can't, I can't finish this take. That's not going to be me. (laughs) And, you know, this is probably the most obvious question and the one you're asked all the most, but in your long stunt career, and and, and I forgive me, it's such a cliche, I'm aware of that, but what what was the scariest moment or the hairiest moment, as we might say, where you thought, I'm slightly in danger here? Um, Well, as, as a stunt performer, uh, I usually, it's, it's wild because I never really felt in danger because I worked with usually worked with people who under they hired you for what you were good at, right? They wouldn't mm. they wouldn't put you in a situation that you were you know likely to get um, out of your out of your league or in water that was too deep for you. Okay, so you know there were times when you knew that it was going to be difficult, like you were going to get rocked, like in on Captain America's Civil War. There's like you know I'm up on the side of a, a condor and I have to drop, let go, and fall eight feet to a rooftop, and then fall ten feet to a truck, and then you know eight feet to the mm. ground. Like you know that's not going to feel good, but you know you've rehearsed enough and you have confidence in your body and your air awareness that you're like my my chances of survival are good. That's why I'm in this <laughs> situation, so I, I feel confident. But for most of the big stunts in my career, I was scared to death. Like it's not about not being afraid. It's about uh, you know, courage is being afraid, but acting in the face of that fear. Right. Yeah. So it's really about managing that fear and that, those feelings. Cause they're going to come up. If they don't, that's when you actually should start worrying and say, I should probably change my <laughs> line of work because if you're not scared, you're not taking the necessary precautions to survive the ordeal. Yeah, yeah. You might be able to double up as a life coach. That, that That's a good way of putting it. You know, I like that. Tell me this. I spoke to the Russo brothers yep. or the Gray Man last year. And here are these guys who have like, you know, Avengers Endgame. The, the list is endless. They're just this monolith of successful movies, you know. And I was very taken by, they were nice guys, but they were so ordinary. It, it was kind of, these two guys just popped on a Zoom screen like this and they were, they could have been accountants, very nice accountants, but they were yeah. just so unassuming <laughs> in a way, funny, but, but completely unassuming. Now I know you have a long working relationship with them and yeah. Joe wrote this uh, extraction too. Are they that unassuming? I mean, I don't want you to tell me they actually storm out of rooms and flip coffee tables, but I just mean, they seem very unassuming. They are. I mean, they're, they're really down to earth, um, you know, salt of the earth people. They, they've got their family men, like they've got their families intact. They travel, the families travel with them and they, they're very, they kind of create an environment of, um, you know, a, a can do attitude. And I, I learned one of the, I think most valuable directing and, you know, uh, life lessons I learned from, from Joe and Anthony working with them in the Marvel universe was the idea that the best idea should always win mm. no matter who it comes from. And so that when you're you know, working on set with them, it's a very collaborative atmosphere. And that that's part of the fun of, 
you know, these movies is when you, when they're, when they're on set and you get to bounce ideas, you know, that they'll have something that maybe that was how it was written in the script, but then you put it on its feet and you go, mm, it's not really working. They're not going to be beating you over the head saying, get what's, you know, get what I wrote. They go, Hey, it's not working. Let's try something different. They're the first mm -hmm. ones to say, let's just try something. And I, I really mm -hmm. appreciate that. Um, and I've, I've learned a lot from those guys through the years. And yeah, they are very unassuming, but very talented filmmakers. Yes, absolutely. The best ideas should win. You see this life coach stuff, man, I'm telling you, <laughs> you know, you're going to have to seriously consider it. Tell me this then, like just in terms of wrapping up, are you, because of your commitment to, you know, real world action and, and keeping the CGI to a minimum, do you, I'm not saying bemoan other movies that have a lot of it, but, but are you disappointed by how much of it you see around no there's a place for it right like i think that you wouldn't be able to 15 20 years ago you wouldn't have been able to have these amazing canon of marvel movies because the computer technology wasn't advanced enough for that to exist and i think those are really entertaining movies and amazing stories that cg allows you know storytellers to dive into so yeah. I think there's a, is a place for it, for sure. It's just a type of movie that I'm drawn to, that I like to participate in, and stories I like to tell that lean away from that. And it's kind of a throwback to the movies that inspired me, like the the Rambo movies, the, the True Lies, or Die Hard, mm. or even the Hong Kong movies of the 80s and 90s. Yeah. That was what inspired me. So my point of view on action is a little bit of an homage to that, less so influenced by CG. Yeah. And then finally, what, what are you going to do next now that you've taken the reins of directing? Uh, well, I mean, maybe life coaching. You, you've kind of inspired me to... <laughs> no, there's failing a, there's that? A, yeah, failing that. Um, no, I, I'd like to keep directing. You know, it's really up to the audiences because you're really only as good as your last uh, outing as a director. So we'll see how Extraction 2 goes. Hopefully people enjoy it and then, you know, see what comes up next. But I would love to to keep telling stories because I really do enjoy it. Okay, well, based on Extraction 2, the future looks bright. Lovely to talk to you, Sam. Continue Thank success. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Sam Hargrave there talking to me about Extraction 2 and his life as a stunt maker, stunt coordinator, I should say, stunt man, stunt person, and indeed what he might do next and possibly become a life coach, on my advice. Up next, conductor David Brophy on his favourite movie. Now, welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well-known about their favourite movie. I'm delighted to be joined by perhaps Ireland's best-known musical conductor and indeed great musical enthusiast. David Brophy joins me now to chat about his favourite movie. Hello, David. How are you? How you doing, John? Are you well? Very well. So your favourite movie, tell our listeners what it is and why. Well, I've chosen my favourite movie is The Shining. Uh, nineteen the 1980s Stanley Kubrick classic uh, based on Stephen King's novel of the same name which was I think written in 1977 a few years beforehand and uh, there are like endless reasons why I would pick such a movie uh, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan of horror movies but this one in particular like is more of I'd say a psychological horror movie and I just find it's the type of film you listen you watch over and over again. I've seen it many, many, many times. And every time I watch it, there's something new in it. But primarily, I suppose it's his use of music, which you'd kind of expect to the musician that I'd kind of be interested in that. And it's it's kind of, for me, it's genius. Uh, and I've always been kind of interested in how film directors and producers use music over time. And Stanley Kubrick, certainly in this film, in The Shining, 
uses music in a way that very few others have used before. So I love the film. It's funny because when you when I think of The Shining and it's been chosen once or twice, I never think of the music or it's down the list of the things that I love about it. Do you and we'll get to that in a second? Do you remember the first time you saw it? Oh, uh, it's fine if you don't. <laughs> yeah, no, it's probably probably I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I'd say it was probably maybe like in the mid nineties, maybe when I was like in my kind of mid twenties uh, around that time, I'd say. Uh, I didn't certainly didn't say it in nineteen eighty because I was quite young at the time. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Look at it. Uh, but so I don't remember. And I was probably saying at that stage I was like either probably in college as a musician or starting my career as a musician. And uh, but I was struck immediately. Well, I mean the the main piece that you know all musicians who know the film would be struck by is his use of Bartok's music, uh, music for strings, percussion, and celeste, which was a piece written by Bela Bartok, the Hungarian composer, in nineteen thirty six. And, you know, I I knew the piece, that piece of music before I knew the film. Mm. And so to hear it in the middle of the film, and it's almost like, you know, I think film producers or film buffs call it Mickey Mousing, that technique where you have the music and it matches exactly gestures you see on screen. He uses that quite subtly. I mean, film, film directors don't use it nowadays at all. But back then he used that and it's like, <laughs> it's like it's almost like the film is made around the music or the music is made around the film or yeah. as if they had Bartok in the room writing the music exactly for the film it's quite uncanny how it's synchronised and I was really taken in by that in the film I think that draws you into this kind of this kind of a trance-like state you go into when you watch that film where you kind of it's not the sense that you hold your breath in traditional sense of horror movies waiting mm. for you know the, the fright to come up on screen it's kind of the whole film has this sense of suspense and this sense of everything being like in sync and like the stars all aligning and fate working all the way through the film. And I think the use of music really kind of plays with that sense of timelessness as the film goes on. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Tell me, I say, I'm not letting you talk about the music. I keep dragging you back to the movie. But what the, the thing that people love, or well, not love, but I suppose the central motif of that movie, for want of a better phrase, is Jack Nicholson losing it. And we don't need to go through the plot because anyone who listens to this show, I think, knows that movie intimately. But it is yeah. him you know, just losing it and becoming a psychopath. Now, maybe the elements of a psychopathy were always there. But that's the thing that is so unnerving to so many people. Does the music dovetail with that uh, in it? Because I actually can't remember now that I think it. Does Does yeah, the music follow kind of his journey into madness? Yeah, well, I think, like, there's, uh, like, he doesn't, Kubrick doesn't just use the music of Bartok, but he uses, like, really quite contemporary esoteric music by Legacy and uh, Christoph Penderecki, Polish composer, and some of the music would like it's really if you listen to it in a concert hall you find it actually hard to take you know like because it's kind of without the visuals but with the visuals like that scene where Wendy discovers the so-called novel at the, mm. at the table in the huge big dining room all yeah. working no play makes Jack a dull boy that famous that's like accompanied by like really quite like intricate and complex atonal orchestral music that if you listen to beyond like outside that just listen to it on like headphones and that on it's online you'd kind of go I would never sit down and listen to that but it's actually perfect for that scene and I also think the way that even like if you look I I would also listen to 
actors voice modulation and you look at as Jack Nicholson as he descends into his own kind of madness and how that uh, manifests itself on, on Wendy his, his wife and Danny his son he actually goes he seems to go into this kind of like quite dark childlike state where a lot of his words he says are also sing-songy you know yeah. uh, because he, he sort of goes into this kind of high kind of pitch voice in place that vo- vocal modulation and that is actually mirrored by the certain parts in the, in the Bartok score which are also they they remind me of they use Celeste as like a very kind of high bell like instrument with high strings it kind of sounds like quite childlike and innocent almost like like a music box you know a music box you want a music box and I, thought, I think there's very like that, that kind of descent into his madness is also mirrored by this kind of childish kind of um, strange playfulness that's even makes the whole thing even more sinister because it, it kind of messes with your head, mm. very sinister. So the music you get is very innocent, like slow movement, particularly a lot of the music from the Bartok is used in the third movement of the music for Strings, Percussion, Celeste. So it's quite high-pitched and very slow and Celeste, and it could be like almost like a lullaby, but you are, like to use the word lullaby, you are lulled into this sense of security before he finally snaps. And I think that's like, like the genius in the in music, but also Nicholson's portrayal has a musical side too and he almost gets quite sing-songy in how he how he modulates his phrase how he speaks his speaking voice at the beginning you know he's quite he has a normal speaking tone like yeah. the film goes on you know the, the, the part where he says you know or I'll huff and I'll puff yeah. and I'll blow yeah. your house in which is like a kid's nursery rhyme you know yeah. he he gives that he delivers that line of very low baritone voices you know and um and then he says, you know, he talks to Wendy in very high pitch. I wasn't trying to hurt you, Wendy. And it's, it's, so that whole, his whole vocal range changes, uh, you know, as the film gets to the end. And I'm fascinated by that as well. And that's also reflected in the music, which, mm. you know, uses extremes of either high pitch notes or low pitch notes. Wow, that is fascinating. Has anyone ever suggested you should do a podcast about movies and music? Because I'm I'm hearing all sorts <laughs> no. of things I never heard before. But maybe, uh, yeah, well, you see, if you're a musician, you spend your whole day long being a musician. You yeah. listen to things, you know, and I hear things. I hear things and how people speak and how people, you know, certainly actors and how they how they use their voices. I'm I'm always, you know, I don't just conduct orchestras and work with orchestras, but also work with choirs. Yeah. You work with choirs, you, you you think about, you know, your head voice, your chest voice, and actors use those voices all the time just through speech. And a lot of speech is, is quite musical in its own way. And I think Jack Nicholson certainly gives a, I would call, a virtuoso performance in terms of voice modulation throughout the film, which I'm fascinated by too. Yeah, I could go down a rabbit hole with you on this, and I know time is against us. Let me ask you two quick things in a wider world. I said something rather pretentiously a while ago that I'm starting to think that they're overusing music in movies in that I just, a lot of, now I don't know how often you get to the cinema, but I just find they're sticking in songs willy-nilly and and almost like in the place of plot which really cheeses me off, like you forgot to write something so let's play Radiohead here or something. But I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm wondering, have you any sense of that or... I agree. I agree, actually, and I'm going to kind of pick up on that point a little bit. In that, I, there was a phase when, like, my kids now are grown up; they're in their kind of late teens now. But there was a spate of films come out when they were younger, like when eight, nine, ten years of age, that actually used music from when I was growing up, like music from the kind of the, even the sixties, seventies, eighties. Yeah, I would have known. And it's all—it's almost like you know the the film directors, they are producers. They haven't got the skills to actually transmit something new and original and, and something that makes the kids feel something. So they pick up on these songs that their parents connect with and then everyone knows how to feel. Mm. It's like, it's, I, and I, I felt very manipulated in 
you know, in a lot of movies, bringing my kids to kind of going, oh, I don't know this song, so I feel a certain way, and then my kids are picking up my vibes, and that's how that's how the film is working. Yeah, <laughs> it's really kind of weird, you know. And I, but aside from that, there are a number of films that you know, uh, and I'm not, I don't get the cinema as much as I'd like to, but a number of films I've seen in recent years that you know it's almost operatic, where the music goes nonstop to the film. Yeah, and you realize that you're actually you're actually listening to a score that's making you feel certain things, but actually what you, what's going on behind it in terms of visual script or uh, what's driving the plot. It's actually not that strong. Yeah. And uh, you come out kind of feeling a bit empty. So I actually prefer to go to a gig than yeah. to, to a film. Yeah. Know? So that's, yeah, I kind of agree with you. I do agree with well, you. Well, I'm, I'm glad you concur. Listen, and then finally, I have been dying to talk what? to you because I've, I've been an admirer of what you do. So here's a really grandiose question that you'll have to answer what? quickly. But it seems to me that you have dedicated your life to attempting to make classical music and music in general something for everyone through the High Hopes Choir the Frontline Choir all the stuff you've done and we don't have time to get into but is is that kind of your working mission and your working life to make music as popular as, as it can be? I, I the short answer is no because I mean like you use the term mission there that <laughs> kind of strikes me that like I'm kind of religious I've got religious <laughs> connotations like I'm thinking immediately of the film Mussolini the mission and I'm thinking <laughs> yeah, no I don't think that at all okay but I do but I I was a great believer I mean I grew up in the north side of Dublin which wasn't like as did I of classical music activity as you know like yeah I was grew up in century and I kind of was like there was no way was there you know classical music when I was growing up at all but I mean I fell into you know, loving all sorts of music in my late teens and all through to my 20s. And I do, like, even now, like, I, I but I listen to all sorts of music now and I kind of just believe that classical music is part of that great, rich world of music that we live in. Mm. And I, why not dip your toe in? And I think, like, nowadays, like, even, like, referring back to my kids' song to, like, my eldest guy, only about six or seven months ago, and he would say, said to me, Daddy, what's the story with the last movement of Beethoven's Pathetique Sonata? And I'm going, what? He's not into, he's not really interested in classical music, you know. I said, How do you know that piece? He said, Well I heard it on a game. So he's wow. hearing it through gaming, you know. And I think, you know, classical music now it's it, we live in a great world where first of all it's very accessible, but also people are using it. When you look at Stanley Kubrick they're using it as what we're talking about now. Mm. But it's been used in games, it's been used mm. in T V series, and no one even thinks about it. I mean my my great dream was that we don't is that we don't call it classical music, yeah. it's just music. Yeah. That's all it is, you know. And I've I've been an advocate for music, for all music in all genres played by all people across the world and I'll continue to do that. Well you certainly have been an advocate for it. And we might talk about that podcast down the line when both our calendars clear. David Brophy, a delight. Let's do it, John. <laughs> a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks, John. Take care. And are you concerned about me? <laughs> of course I am. Of course you are. <laughs> ever thought about my responsibilities? Oh, Dick, what are you talking about? Have you ever had a single moment's thought about my responsibilities? Have you ever thought for a single solitary moment about my responsibilities to my employers? Has it ever occurred to you that I have agreed to look after the Overlook Hotel until May the 1st? Does it matter to you at all that the owners have placed their complete confidence and trust in me and that I have signed a letter of agreement, a contract? in which I have accepted that responsibility. You have the slightest idea what a moral and ethical principle is, do you?
a clip there from the unmistakable The Shining. And you heard me talking to David Brophy, conductor, musician, music enthusiast. David Brophy there about his favourite movie, a fascinating guy. You know, some people are just great talkers. I, I think people who are passionate about what they do tend to be great talkers. And you heard the way he talked about movies there, the music in movies. It's the passion that comes across and, you know, interest melds with passion and you have a fascinating guy. So uh, be passionate, people. I guess is what I'm saying or something like that. I'm turning into a life coach now. That is it for this week. Next week on the show, I'm going to be talking to Robert Carlyle and Mark Aidy, the cast of the new series, TV show of The Full Monty. Yes, it's back. There's lots of other good stuff in there in next week's show. In the meantime, though, I will remind you this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5 p.m. on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6 p.m. here on Newstalk. Do get in touch with me at any stage during the week. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle. Or you can email me screentime at Newstalk.com. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you all next week.